Welcome back, Bible readers. This is the Rooted Podcast, and this is week number, well, whatever week it is. I'm not sure exactly what week we're in. I think we're in 15 or 16, maybe something like that. Thank you for joining us once again. Before we get started for this week, as we're going to start uh, talking through uh, the first, I think, 15 chapters of Acts, not all today, but in the next three weeks or so, we'll be pushing through the rest of Acts. Again, we talked last time with some uh, resurrection reading, and so after the resurrection as the church starts, so I thought it appropriate for us to at least talk about the first 10 or 10, 12, 13 chapters of the book of Acts-ish, the next three weeks. It's in your reading, uh, so just pay attention to that. But before we get started, I want to make just a quick announcement and let you all know that uh, coming up starting in May, the first week in May, the first Wednesday in May, we're going to start back our Bible Institute and if you've never been a part of our Bible Institute, well, then we'd love to have you uh, in person teaching in the student ministry building. Um, both Tim and myself will be uh, teaching classes that will last um, from May all the way into June, about eight, nine weeks. And classes will be likely to be on Wednesday morning from the 9 to 12 o'clock hour. That's not all one class. Um, that's Tim would teach one and then I would teach the other one afterwards. And so, um, Pay attention to the website and other information. I'll send out emails as well to all of our Bible readers to give you some additional details about the Bible Institute reopening. I know several of you have already asked me about when's that going to happen. Well, it's happening soon. Um, so the first week in May, uh, we're going to roll that out. I'm going to be teaching a class um, in Old Testament chronology. And so I think that's a uh, might be a good thing for some of you who like dates and places and times. We're going to try to connect all these things, show you the significance of them, teach you a little bit about how to look at some of these Bible events, especially in the Old Testament, as it relates to their chronology and how you connect them all together. Um, and I believe Brother Tim is going to be doing a, a survey through the book of Jeremiah, so another Old Testament uh, class. So they'll have lots of Old Testament uh uh, knowledge and, and learning and uh, ready for that time. But today we're going to be talking about the New Testament. Today we're talking through Acts and the first, I think, about five chapters. I think Acts chapter 1 through Acts chapter 5, verse 11 or 12, something of that nature. So let's get it started with Acts. And Acts is a book that um, a lot of people will look at and sometimes scratch their head because there's so many names in Acts. There's so many places, there's so many people. There's the good, the bad, and the ugly, what I call in the book of Acts. Um, but for me, Acts is real simple because when I think of Acts, I just think of geography um, because that's essentially how the book of Acts is set up. And it's set up as the gospel goes out, it's going to get from Jerusalem and it's going to get all the way to Rome, some 1,800 miles away. And there's really nothing you, you can do to stop that. Uh, you got to get on the gospel train or you get run over by the gospel train. We'll put it that way. Um, and so it's that sovereign progression of that gospel message from Jesus in Jerusalem all the way to the Gentiles in Rome. So that's how I look at it in a geographical setting, all the dates, all the times, all the people, all the characters. But I know you've got some things uh, to add to our discussion today as we talk about Acts. Yes, and th Tim. that's very true. It's it's geographical. Some Theologians use the Acts 1-8 as the outline yes. of the, the entire book as the gospel moves from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the othermost parts of the earth, and, and they divide the chapter and uh, outline the chapter in, in that way. So that's, 
That's very true. So we see the the movement of the apostles, the movement of the church. Mm-hmm. Uh, someone said the book is the act or the acts of the Holy Spirit. True. The movement yeah. of the Spirit of God. Yeah. First twelve chapters, the key person is yeah, Holy Spirit. Yeah, the yeah. Holy Spirit working. Yeah. Through Peter, and then the second half of the book, who do we see predominantly? We've got Paul or Saul. Actually, yeah. it's the same guy. <laughs> so that's true. <laughs> and also the key, one of the key words, too, in the book of Acts is witnesses. You find that almost some 30, 40 times because they were to be eyewitnesses of his resurrection or witnesses of, of um, or just be witnesses. Like today, we'd say we testify about what Jesus has done in our life, you know, giving our salvation experience as a witness to others, like as we witness to others. So you find a lot of those details um, in the book of Acts. And and Acts kind of is, and I said this last week, I believe if I can get this right, is the only inspired sequel to the Gospels. And so after the Gospels, the next part two, so to speak, of the Christianity is the book of Acts because a lot of the letters in the New Testament, and you know this as well, they kind of took place and happened and were written during that time frame that you find the events in the book of Acts unfolding. Um, Now, last week we talked a little bit, got in, Nathan and I got in a little bit to Acts chapter 1. And you have any uh, additional details here to add in Acts chapter 1, kind of... getting us the big picture here. They're, they're watching Jesus ascend up into heaven. And of course, they got questions as to when he's coming back and all that kind of stuff. But do you have some additional stuff you'd yeah, like to uh, talk about? When we, when we come to the book of Acts, uh, we, we, we really need to, to hone in on hermeneutics mm, or yeah. our process of interpreting the book. Uh, hermeneutics is, is how you interpret the Bible. Yeah. Uh, for instance, Pastor Jeremy will know how to finish this sentence. Uh, he's heard it a hundred times. I've heard it thousands. We hear it thousands of times. The book of Acts is descriptive, not prescriptive. Not prescriptive. I know that one. I know and that so one. that's that's a hermeneutic <laughs> truth. It is. And it so is. it's it's really really important. Uh, there's a there's a big big transition. Anytime mm. in, in in the Bible you see a a, a huge transition. You know, that's a hermeneutical marker. Uh, For instance, when I think of Luke chapter 16, verse number 16, Pastor Jeremy, uh, I think of a huge hermeneutical, I call it a a marker. Mm -hmm. Uh, Jesus said the law and the prophets were until John. Since that time, the kingdom of God has been preached and everyone is pressing into it. And so, you know, this, this matter of the kingdom of God, is, it's picked up in the first few chapters yeah. uh, of the book of Acts. And f- for instance, in verse number three, uh, Jesus presented himself alive after his suffering by many infallible proofs. Mm. He was seen by them, eyewitnesses, during the 40 days and speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of God. And uh, then, then in verse number six, therefore, when they had come together, they asked him, saying, "Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom?" They, they were thinking kingdom, you know. And so Jesus was thinking, "Well, this is church." Right. And so it's it's a, a time of transition. 
And so what do you think about that? Well, they were still thinking about it because they were, they were thinking that Jesus is going to come back next week. I mean, they didn't know that the church was going to kind of unfold and it'd be 2,000 years later. I mean, even Paul tells us, you know, we're living in the last days. And so um, that whole idea of the kingdom, it's, it's kind of starts to become a big deal in, what, chapters 1, 2, and 3. Then after chapter 3, I think the apostles kind of get the picture of, hey, you know, our job now is to get the gospel out right. and, and not be worried. And, and you yes. notice what Jesus says here in that text. Absolutely. He says, he said, um, don't worry about what's going to happen in the end. My father has all that taken under control, or he's got all that under control. So he didn't say it wouldn't happen. He just yeah. says, let's not worry about it. What we have it's, to worry about it's now. It's not time for you to know the times or the seasons. Yeah, exactly. And for my father, he, he has it on his own authority. So this is, it's still future. Right. Um, yeah, there's still a plan to it, and there's still a future with it. Now, one of the things that you mentioned earlier about descriptive and prescriptive, before we get into some of the details here in chapter 1, uh, we just wanted to make sure you guys understand, uh, Bible readers, what that means. Descriptive is just describing an event that happened without any intention on us um, doing that same event. Uh, you know, we find this a lot of times in some Old Testament narratives and Old Testament stories where it describes an event. It doesn't mean for us to go thou and do likewise. It doesn't say that at all. Uh, whereas prescriptive events, usually those are related to commands where Jesus says to love others, to love your neighbor, to do this, to do that. So that's one of the easiest ways because we understand that not everything in the Bible is prescriptive. It's just describing it. And a lot of what happens in Acts this transition period is is often descriptive. It's just telling us what happens. It doesn't say exactly. you got to go and do likewise. Now, what happens is that when people take descriptive passages and they make them prescriptive, then that leads to sometimes cultish behavior, That's right. where they start getting involved. In, the yeah, exactly. yeah. Because wrong application always leads, or excuse me, wrong interpretation always leads to wrong application. True. And, and so you have to be careful. You know, in one of the classic examples, you think of. Uh, uh, some of the Mormons who believe in um, um, many wives, or is it always wives or not husbands too? I just thought about that. <laughs> I think that. it's wives. Just kind of hit me, you know. Yeah, you know, in the Old Testament, yeah, we know that you know some of the patriarchs and some of these well-known characters had, but it doesn't mean you need to go today us and do likewise. It's just telling you what happened because God said in the very beginning, you know, one man and one woman. Um, but, you know, things like this happened in Scripture because people like us were sinful. Right. We have problems Absolutely. just like they do. And so it doesn't mean we're supposed to go emulate those things. We're supposed to emulate things that are good from those guys. There's a lot of things that you'd emulate well from David, for example, but then there's some things you'd want to shy away from of David's behavior, some of the things that he did that weren't necessarily the, the best so just keep that in mind as you read through and, and this idea of descriptive and prescriptive. We come to um, one of the first things that happens here in Acts in the first or in the second half of chapter one, where um, after the ascension they come back and and Peter stands up and says, "We got to take care of this issue um, of Judas because um, Judas is, has has gone to his place." Peter says, "And we need a replacement." And one of the reasons it's often given for that is because Jesus said earlier that the 12 apostles are to reign with Christ on 12 thrones. And so I think in Peter's mind, um, and I don't know what Peter's mind may have been thinking about because I'm not Peter and I can't push my mind back to what he was thinking, but maybe he was thinking that if we don't fill this 12th office of the apostle, then maybe Jesus won't ever come back. 
because how could we rule in his kingdom with him if we don't even have 12 apostles to reign with him in that kingdom? And so maybe that might be one of the reasons why. I don't know. Um, But I know that they decide to select a 12th apostle, and it's not the apostle Paul, by the way. Um, He's the later apostle that comes along. Um, But the one they choose here is a fellow by the name of Matthias. And I don't know. I was thinking about this too, Tim. What would you think? I mean, I'd be a little nervous about electing another apostle because Judas, who was chosen uh, by Jesus, you know, fell off the wayside, so to speak. I'd be nervous about choosing another apostle wanting to make him. I'd say, let's just stay with the 11 we have and not mess, not mess with the apple cart here. And let's not upset the apple cart. What do you think? I mean, (laughs) well, and, and the scriptures in chapter one there give us uh, you know, some qualifications for being an apostle. Yeah. There was only 12, 13 apostles, and yeah. they had to be, first of all, eyewitnesses. That they, verse 21 says, yeah. these men who accompanied us all the time that the Lord went in and went out among us, and they had to be there from the beginning, from the baptism of John to that day when he was taken from us. And one of these... He's talking about qualifications, must become a witness of, of us, of his resurrection. They yeah. had to be an eyewitness of the resurrection of Christ. Yeah. And, uh, so there were a total of, I see in this verse, a total of three qualifications. Number one, you had to be a man. I'm sorry, ladies, it's just the way it was. You had to be a man. Number two, you had to be with Jesus, it says, from the time he started his ministry until the time he ends. So that kind of probably cuts out a lot of people, wouldn't you say? And then the third one would be an eyewitness of his resurrection. And see, here's the reason why we say, now Paul technically was an apostle because he was sent with a commission by God, but he couldn't have been the 12th apostle because he was never with Jesus from the beginning of his ministry to the end. Now he did eyewitness Jesus' resurrection, the resurrected Lord later on in Acts chapter 9. Exactly. And and he was a man, so there's two of the three, but he didn't meet all three. So that's a specific reason why um, we like to say that Paul, yeah, he's, we'll call him the 13th apostle or, or whatever you might call him. But Matthias here is chosen, and it's interesting of the method they use to choose Matthias. What do you think about that with yeah, the casting of lots? They're, they're still using some of the Old Testament uh, <laughs> they still are. mechanisms. And so, yeah, some of the things that were used there. In, and, of course, we're in a transition. Yes, we so, are. Yeah. You know, there's a John the Baptist, he, he's... You know, a bridge from the Old Testament to the New Testament. It's a good way of putting it. And yeah. it's, I'm, I'm thinking Peter just didn't really, he, he doesn't understand what's in the future. Uh, I, I don't think any of them, it was called a mystery in Ephesians yeah. 2 and yeah. Colossians, Ephesians 2 and 3, something that's been hidden now about to be revealed, yep. uh, the, this Holy Spirit coming, this church. And so, yeah. you know. These guys were just going at it one day at a time. They didn't know exactly what was going to unfold. Yeah, that's what I was saying earlier. They thought that, you know, tomorrow Jesus is coming back to set up the kingdom. I mean, they were like continually asking him, when are you coming back to get rid of Rome? When are you coming yes. back to set right. up? It was a political yeah. thinking, too, as well right. as a military thinking. Um, but they, they cast lots, and be careful as you read that text. Don't think that the lots are determining um, what's happening because the text says, Lord, you know us and show us which men it says that you have already chosen. Right. And the casting of lots, especially in the Old Testament, was done in that specific way. Um, they were to cast lots and 
God was going to show them whom God had already chosen. The casting of the lots didn't somehow determine who was going to be the next apostle. It was going to show them or, or, or help them understand to whom God had already chosen. And by the way, you know, this is the last time that casting of lots appear in Scripture, and the easiest way to explain it is to say, well, in chapter 2, the Holy Spirit comes, and now you don't need uh, to cast lots because you have the Holy Spirit who lives inside of you, and He can help you make decisions all day long. Can you imagine having to cast lots all day long for decision-making stuff? You know, what am I? Do I get a cheeseburger today? You know, <laughs> cast the lots or something, cast the dice. But we don't have to do that anymore because the Holy Spirit comes. And um, but for whatever reason, I think Peter was kind of pressed to to get this twelfth apostle installed in the office, kind of get things in order so that. Christ and his kingdom would come quickly. I think that really was his intent. Like they were talking, like you said, about so much. They want to kind of get all their, you know, I's dotted and their T's crossed as far as things that they had to do to make sure that the kingdom could come and it could come quickly. Um, And of course, you roll into chapter two. In chapter two, we say is the day in which the church started, uh, the day of Pentecost. um, And uh, the Holy Spirit descends, and be careful. Again, notice this is a one-time event. This doesn't really, it doesn't happen again. This is describing what happens. There's and, a and repeat that this is a one-time one-time yeah. event. The actually, day of actually, we could, yes, this specific day. This but specific. If, if we were true to the text, we'll look later on when we get to Acts chapter eight, and there was a type of Samaritan Pentecost or a Pentecost to the. Gentiles, but we'll talk about that when we get there. But yeah, this is a, was a one-time event, and notice the similes, and your, you know, it came in like fire or like wind. Uh, there's some of the language that Luke uses here because he's describing an event that nobody's ever seen before. It, it, it's he's describing something that nobody has ever seen, and so he describes it in this way: they hear something and they see something. And the picture I get as you kind of look at the text and try to imagine what happens, I get this idea of like a flame of fire kind of coming into the room, and that flame kind of divides out into you know like twelve smaller flames, and those smaller flames sit on top of the heads. Of the apostles, that's kind of the picture that I get because it shows it's unified. You know, it's one Holy Spirit. It's not twelve different Holy Spirits. It's one coming in right. and then dividing out over the heads of these twelve. And that's what it says, apostles divided, cloven. Yeah. And it was. And you're exactly right. It was something you could see. Yeah, they heard it. There was a sound of a rushing mighty yeah. wind. Oh, that sounded and like. Verse number three says, "Then there appeared." Yeah. These divided cloven tongues that you uh, that you described to us, mm-hmm. and it set and, and you described it well. How yeah. did it set on each one of them? So yeah. the way you described it is is exactly the way I would picture it in my mind. Is this is being uh, described to us in verse number three? Yeah, and it says now in my translation in verse number four it says everyone present was filled with the Holy Spirit and began speaking in other languages. Now some texts will say other tongues. Now one of the things that your charismatics will say is your charismatics will talk about tongues and talk about the evidence of tongues, which means the evidence of salvation. So you can only be saved the way you show that you're saved according to a charismatic uh, belief is that if you speak in tongues. Well, their definition of tongues is different than what the definition of tongues is in Scripture because the definition of tongues in Scripture is another unknown language. And so it would be like right now, if I were to speak in tongues, Tim, it would be like um, 
me starting to speak in Russian. It's a known language, but it's unknown to me because I have no idea how to speak in Russian. Okay, and, and the but miracle if, too would be I would hear and understand exactly. You. <laughs> so it's a two part. It's a two part thing exactly because I as a I have I have never I've heard Russian words before, but have no clue as to even speak it. But if I were supernaturally been given that ability, and then Tim here has the ability to understand it, then I would be speaking in tongues as far as what Scripture says. But it doesn't say, go and speak in tongues in this text of Acts chapter 2. It's just describing what happens. And further evidence for that is, look, it talks about different languages. It says the people who were there. Look at it. It says in verses 8 and 9, and yet we hear them speaking in our own native languages. Here we are, Parthenians, Medes, Elamites, people from Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, and the province of Asia, Pamphylia, Egypt, areas of so visitors in Rome. So all these people here are hearing the gospel in their own language. It was discernible. Yeah, exactly. It was discernible. And by the way, it says, uh, the last part of verse 10, it says visitors from Rome, or what does your translation say? What verse? Uh, the last part of verse 10. Um, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them speaking in our own tongues the wonderful works of God. Gotcha. Okay. So one of the things that um, is interesting here, and you'll find out if you were to read the rest of the book of Acts, when Paul gets to Rome... Guess what? There's already a church there established in Rome. Well, how is that possible? Because here it says in this text, you have visitors here from Rome. So they're already at Pentecost after this event is done. They're already taking the gospel to the rest of the world. They're already taking it back to their home places to, to Rome. And when Paul goes throughout his missionary journey, sometimes he finds places that have churches and places that don't have churches. And so as the gospel goes out, it's already starting to get to where it needs to go here in the very beginning in chapter 2. We don't have to wait all the way to the end of the book into chapter 28 to find out, did it get there or not? Um, now, Peter decides, like any good preacher, that um, this is an opportunity for me to talk to the crowd about what's going on because some of the crowd thinks that these apostles are drunk. And Peter says, no, well, they can't be drunk. It's too early in the morning. It's 9 o'clock in the morning. And so Peter gets up. And it's a great opportunity, right? Seizing upon an opportunity to, to preach the gospel. And Peter gets up and gives his first ever sermon. Can you imagine giving your first sermon on the day of Pentecost? <laughs> that, that, that would have to be a pretty, pretty powerful sermon, pretty nervous for Peter, but boy, he was filled with the Holy Spirit. I don't think there was any nervousness. There was a lot of people there. There, there was a ton of people there. And so as he preaches the message, the theme as you read through it in chapter two is that Jesus is the Messiah. That's the theme. And everything he does in that message in chapter two and in his sermon in chapter three, he's, they're trying to prove this, that Jesus was who he said he was, the Messiah. Even as you go through and talk about Stephen's speech in Acts 7, Paul's sermons in Acts 13, 14, and 17, it all has this main theme that Jesus is the Messiah. He is who he says he is. And it starts out here in Acts chapter 2. And there's a lot to talk about with Peter's sermons. Is there anything here um, that you want to key in on, on hone yeah, in on, you, on as, chapter 2? As, as I was reviewing these verses, yeah. uh, I, I noticed Peter... A lot of the people that, that speak, they're going to quote from Old Testament passages. Yeah. And I, I love it when the Bible teaches the inspiration of Scripture. 
It says, David said through the Holy Spirit, and then he quotes from the Old Testament. The Holy Spirit said. So, yes, this is a God-breathed book. This is an inspired book, and... uh, it's it's the the word of God, and I, I love uh, what he says in his message, and his message is is Jesus of Nazareth, Christ crucified, yep. risen from the dead. Uh, you know that's that's the focus, the the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. And I've been told that every sermon in the Book of Acts includes the resurrection of Christ from the dead. I would, I would agree. And so the resurrection, hey, it was fresh. You know, how far are we? What, 40 days from um, uh, the time Christ arose from the dead? How many yeah, days? I mean, well, 40 days after the resurrection right. until the ascension. So yeah. um, we're so, still, you know, right now. Still we're fresh. Only yeah, it's still fresh. <laughs> uh, until the day of Pentecost is really truly when the, it finishes for us today, I don't know what day that would be. I guess that's towards the end of May or something, yeah. um, something like that. Notice in verse 32 and 33, I highlighted here of chapter 2, you know, he, he, here's a great place where the Trinity shows up too. Mm-hmm. It says, God raised, God raised Jesus from the dead, and we are witnesses of this, and now he's exalted the place of the highest honor in heaven at God's right hand. And the Father, as he had promised, gave him, Jesus, the Holy Spirit, to pour out on us. Um, which I think is kind of a unique way of looking at how the Holy Spirit's ministry is. It's a ministry of Jesus. It's kind of one who's sent under Jesus's command. I think sometimes we kind of look at it as three separate, and we do, and it is. You know, we're not trying to solve the Trinity here. We don't have the brain power or the time uh, to do that in this life or even the next life, probably. But it's just interesting here how all three parts of the Trinity here. And how many times it says that God raised Jesus. God raised Jesus, like you said, the resurrection. It shows up so many times. It shows a distinction between that Jesus is the sacrifice, you know, and God wasn't the sacrifice, but it was Jesus, and, and God raised Jesus. Um, but you, you see those things time and time and time again. And as the church begins to grow here, after Peter preaches the sermon, he gets a great response. 3,000 people accept Jesus as their Savior, and then 3,000 are baptized. Can you imagine trying to baptize that many people at one time? That's why you got 12 apostles, right? We can divide them up to however many people that need to. But that's still a lot. That's a lot. That's still, what, 250 people apiece or something, something like that? That still takes some time. Well, as that happens, the church kind of... Uh, begins to be established in a, in a very strong way at the beginning. The believers start coming together, start helping each other with their needs and different things that yes. they have. And then the scene shifts to uh, a common practice of what was going on in chapter 3 of Peter and John um, going into the temple, it seems, um, every day to take part in prayer service, and but also to take part in preaching the gospel, continuing to preach the gospel. And so... Um, the scene in Acts chapter 3 is Peter and John go in and they meet this blind man, this blind beggar here at the temple gate. And later on, if you read ahead to the end of chapter 4, we find this guy's been uh, blind for, or excuse me, not blind. Was he blind and lame or just lame? I think he was just lame. Just I'm not lame. sure now. You know, <laughs> I think now he was that you just bring, lame. bring that up, a Maybe certain I... lame man from his mother's there womb. There we go. Okay, so he couldn't uh, walk, so he was lame. But it tells us at the end of chapter 4, I think it is, that he was lame for almost 40 years. So fixing I, his eyes on him, John and Peter said, and look, so I look immediately, on us. I immediately thought, Tim, though, like, 
if he was in the temple for this long, yeah. then Jesus probably passed him many times yeah. and Jesus didn't heal him. If you think about that, because it was the way it was set was that it was set for this moment in the text in Acts yes. chapter two for this time, because Peter and John heal the man and they use that as a means to say, look, Jesus, we healed this man. Peter says, I didn't heal this man of my own ability or own power. I healed this man because Jesus is still alive, Amen. because Jesus rose again from the grave. It's Jesus that did this, not me. And the religious leaders start getting upset. They're, they're a little upset here because, wait a minute, you're still preaching in the name of Jesus. How can you still preach in the name of Jesus? Um, and, and, and Peter says, of course, Peter talks a little bit about some other things because he gets an opportunity to preach his second sermon in the temple complex and the same thing. Of course, the second sermon, I think, is a little more tailored to the religious leaders and kind of faulting them and saying, listen, you guys did this. It's your all's fault for this. But nonetheless, he uses that lame man's, the, the miracle to say, look, Jesus is still alive. Jesus is still healing people. Well, that upsets the religious leaders because they thought they got rid of Jesus. They thought, oh, didn't we get rid of the guy? Now his followers are causing more and more ruckus. And, of course, that kind of leads to the um, Sanhedrin here wanting to get Peter and John before the Sanhedrin in chapter 4 and to question them and to ask questions about them. What else you got here for these well, couple of ones? Again, my thing is hermeneutics, and it, it just the Bible is so rich. And if you understand how to interpret it properly, yeah, oh. then you can, you can apply it. You made the statement. Uh, what was it you said? The wrong application or the yeah. wrong interpretation leads, leads to, to the, the wrong, wrong application. application. Oh, yeah, every and single time. And that leads to wrong behavior. <laughs> True, you know? even further. Um, yes, yes. But it's, it's we, we Americanize the Bible. Yeah. Uh, but but I, I want to read uh, verse number 36. The Bible says, Therefore let all the house of Israel, mm. keep that in mind, yeah. know assuredly that God has made this Jesus whom you crucified both Lord and Christ, yeah. Israel, the house of Israel. Who is Jesus? He is the Christ. He is the Messiah. And when you go through these first five chapters, there's some unusual names that are given to Jesus you won't see anywhere else in the Bible. Yep. Uh, for instance, in chapter 3, verse 13, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, yep. the God of our fathers, yep. glorified his servant Jesus. Yep. Unusual uh, you know, name for, for Jesus. In verse 26, it says, when God raised up his servant Jesus. You know, his same servant thing. Jesus. Yeah. Verse 14, but you denied the Holy One and the just. And it's a, it's a reference to the name of Jesus. Yeah. In verse number 15, the new King James calls him the prince of life. You killed the prince mm. of life, meaning yeah. he is, he's the founder of life. Mine says the author of life. The author oh, of that life. Good? The that is a life. good translation. Yeah, yeah. The word author is, is a good yeah, translation. Yeah, because he is. Yeah. And then in verse number 18 of chapter 3, but those things which God foretold, by the mouth of all the prophets, that's Old Testament, yep. the Christ, that's Messiah, should suffer. He has fulfilled. So yeah. Christ is Messiah. So yeah. understand, Israel, Messiah. Christ, when you read Christ, it's, it's Messiah. And then in 427, he uses that phrase again, your holy servant Jesus 
Yeah. And then verse number 30 of chapter 4, yeah. your holy servant. These are unusual names given you know, of Jesus, and this kind of intrigues me. How, how does yeah. the new NLT translate Verse 27. And, uh, and it says, This happened here in this very city. For Herod Antipas, Pontius Pilate, the governor, nor the Gentiles, and the people of Israel were all united against Jesus, your holy servant. Okay, your holy whom servant. You anointed. Yes, whom um, you anointed. Yeah, and then, uh, like you said in verse 30, stretch out your hands, your holy servant, Jesus. Yeah. Um, several things as well. So um, now, when Peter and John, we'll, we'll finish real quick here. When Peter and John were um, uh, being looked at by the Sanhedrin. Uh, the Sanhedrin, of course, um, were upset that they were still preaching in the name of Jesus, uh, the man you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, um, Peter says. And, you know, they get up here and, and uh, the Sanhedrin see these guys and they're kind of befuddled because these guys aren't academics. They're not smart guys. They're just fishermen. But it says that they were men who had been with Jesus and they saw that they were ordinary men. And that's, I mean, you, you talk about uh, testimony, um, ordinary men, and they knew that they were men who had been with Jesus. There was something about them that stood out so much so that they knew. Just like us today, you know, when people see us, there's something about us that they sh should stand out from us, that they know that we are a follower of Christ, that we have, have loyalty to Him and to Him alone. They should know that by our actions, by the way we do things, by the way we talk. Um, very, very important. And of course, the Sanhedrin could care less. The Sanhedrin are just trying to find a way to silence uh, Peter and John. And so they uh, tell them, don't speak in the name of Jesus anymore. And of course, that doesn't stop them. And they go back to the house um, um, and they're excited, which is interesting, isn't it? They're excited that they got to be persecuted for the name of Jesus. Yeah. They're excited that they got to... to um, suffer almost for his name. Yes. And it says when they pray, and I, and I highlighted this down in verse 31, it says they pray uh, to the Lord. And it says after this prayer, it says the meeting place shook and they were filled with the Holy Spirit. Then they preached the word of God with boldness. Mm -hmm. So to me, it was the filling, not the salvation experience where the Holy Spirit takes up residence in you, but the filling of the Holy Spirit that caused them to be more bold for Christ. Because remember, Paul says in Ephesians, be filled with the Spirit. Right. Because sometimes, some days, we're not filled with the right. Spirit. It's something that we need to ask for and ask the Lord to help us. And here, they, they prayed, and it says they asked for filling, and that filling led to boldness. Yes. It didn't lead to speaking in tongues. It led to boldness and boldness for them to proclaim the message of the gospel because that's what they wanted. They, they prayed, said, Lord, give us boldness so we can go out and preach because they wanted to be bold just like Peter and John were Amen. bold. And so I guess the lesson is just be careful what you pray for. Maybe be more specific yeah. about what you pray for. It's um, interesting when you, when you think of the baptism of the Holy Spirit puts you in the body. Right. The filling of the Holy Spirit helps you function in the body. In the body. You got it. And to help us to interpret Scripture that you mentioned a minute ago from Acts chapter 2 about the tongues situation, yeah. the Bible says that all believers. First Corinthians says we were all baptized by it. one spirit into the body of Christ. So as we're filled, the filling of our spirit helps us to be uh, to function in our spiritual exactly. giftedness, to be empowered to serve God. And so right. that you make a great point because it's hard because not every yeah. day do we get up and just 
want to serve. Because again, we live in a sin-cursed world. We carry a sin-cursed nature with us everywhere we go. So it's a struggle. It's a battle. No wonder Paul says so many times, I get up every morning to do this and it just doesn't happen the way I want it to. Um, it's a struggle. Um, so as our reading for this week ends, you end with two other characters and maybe we'll pick them up next week. You've got Barnabas and then Ananias and Sapphira. And basically, this is the first time we're introduced to Barnabas. And by the way, Barnabas is huge because if we didn't come into contact with Barnabas, then we may have never come into contact with the Apostle Paul. That's right. He's that important. And later on in the He's text, the man. yeah, later on in the text, we'll, I'll show you how influential he was. Yes. But Barnabas shows us what you're supposed to do as a as a church member, as a part of the body of Christ. Ananias and Sapphira give us a negative example of what you shouldn't do and what happens, the consequences of not doing it uh, the proper way. But we'll talk about that um, next time because we're already uh, way over our time for this week. But the book of Acts, there, there's so much stuff in, in Acts. There's so much material and content. But as you read um, through the book of Acts, um, if you have any questions, send those questions. We'll try to answer them. Maybe we can answer some of them um, uh, live here. But send them to Bible reading at lmbc.org and uh, enjoy your reading this week and uh, keep celebrating the resurrection because remember, you know, we don't just celebrate the resurrection on Easter, we celebrate it every Sunday. Every man, every Sunday. Every, every Sunday, every Sunday. So we'll see you next time. Enjoy your reading for this week.